I'll invite you to turn with me. Turn that on. I'll invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 12. We are looking today at what is often called the golden rule. We find that in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 12. So let's begin by reading that together. Our Lord says, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Jesus has addressed many, many matters in the Sermon on the Mount related to our interaction with one another, our interaction with other people. <clears throat> uh, most recently, uh, in verses 1 to 6 of chapter 7, uh, Jesus taught us about not being judgmental, not being overly critical in our engagement with other people. Uh, then in verses 7 to 11, we have this admonition to prayer, which again, uh, we need to hear um, as we think about all that Jesus has taught in the Sermon on the Mount, as we think about some sort of marching orders, if you will, for the church, uh, how we're going to need the Lord's help to grow, to be sanctified, uh, certainly to apply the, the whole of, of uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And that, of course, includes the instruction that came right before the admonition to prayer on not judging others and so on. And now, in verse 12, Jesus finishes off this section of the Sermon on the Mount with this summary statement that sums up much of what he has said already. Of course, he has not addressed every possible situation that a Christian could find themselves in. Um, the whole of Scripture doesn't do that. That would be, well, I don't want to say that would be impossible. God could do anything, but... Uh, that'd be a really big book if it was trying to, to give us every possible scenario you could find yourself in, and here's exactly what you ought to do and how to do it. But there are principles given, there are statements given that we then apply these principles in different scenarios. And Jesus has been doing that. He has given us various principles, and then he'll give us some examples of how that, what that looks like in certain situations. So, for example, in chapter 6, verse 1, beware of practicing your righteousness before men. And then he gives really three common areas in which we tend to fall. And, uh, and of, but of course, we want to practice how we, be, beware how we practice our righteousness before men in, in, all, in all manner of, of uh, areas of life. And so here again, in verse 12, we have another general statement that summarizes a lot of what he has already said and a general statement that can be applied in innumerable circumstances, including ones that he has not raised. As I said, this is often called the golden rule. And when I think about that golden rule, I often think of um, something you tell children uh, to treat others how you want to be treated, something that's kind of simple that they can maybe get their heads around somewhat. Um, and even calling it the golden rule sort of has that kindergarten classroom sound. At least, I don't know if that's just me, but to me, that's how I often think of it. But of course, um, this is not something that is merely for children. It is for children. It's a helpful way of putting it so that we can understand it. It's simple. But of course, Jesus is also addressing the adults in the room, so to speak. 
It is a basic and yet profound truth. And it's important for us to hear it because it is God's way of summarizing our Christian duty to our fellow men. So you've heard this a lot. You've probably told your children to think this way. This is not something I'm guessing that's new to many or anyone here. And yet we need to be reminded that this isn't just a simple phrase to throw around and then move on, but it is a summary of our duty toward our fellow men. It's God's word to us. It summarizes for us the demands of love. So as we go through this text, we're just going to have two points to the outline. We want to look first at the authority behind the command. The authority behind the command. And then take some time to look at the command itself. Uh, and then the particular way that it is stated here by our Lord. So beginning with the authority behind the command. I think it's important for us to realize that Jesus does not drop this so-called golden rule on his hearers out of thin air. Now, to be clear, if he was doing that, it would be completely uh, authoritative. Uh, If Jesus says it being who he is, then it carries with it authority, the very weight of the word of God. So if it was out of nowhere, it would still be authoritative because of who said it. And yet, I think it matters that this is not out of thin air because Jesus has said in this very Sermon on the Mount that he has not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but rather to fulfill them. So he said, stated that back in chapter 5, uh, verses 17 and 18 specifically. The moral law of God cannot be passed away. Jesus is coming. The king is here. There is new work that is happening But it is not as if the law and the prophets is just done away with. That'll be better. So it is not as if God's law can simply pass away. So Jesus has been upholding God's law throughout this sermon, often showing us its true intention. You remember he's gone through some of the Ten Commandments. You have heard that it was said the way that it was being taught and understood in his day. And then he brings about correction, showing us the true intention of God's word, of God's law. And now as he brings this section to a close, he offers us this summary of what is taught in the law and the prophets as it pertains to our treatment of one another. Again, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them for... So why is he saying this? What's the reason for this? What's the grounding of this command? For this is the law and the prophets. He grounds his command, this statement, not, in, not, not simply in his own authority as the king of God's kingdom, Not simply in his own authority as the eternal Son of God made flesh, but rather he grounds this command in scriptures. He says to treat other people in this way because this is the law and the prophets. This is what scripture says.
Of course, we might wonder, as Jesus says, this is what the law and the prophets are about. We might wonder, aren't the law and the prophets ultimately about Jesus himself? Isn't that what we find in Luke 24? Isn't that what we are at pains to say a lot? The Old Testament is pointing us towards Christ. That's ultimately uh, what, they are, what they are about. And of course, that's true. But what he's getting at here is that so far as the law and the prophets address righteousness and how it is that we are to treat other people, so righteousness as it pertains to treating your neighbor, interacting with your neighbor, this, what Jesus is saying here, this is what the law and the prophets reveal. This is what they teach. And we are told throughout the New Testament that this is indeed an accurate summary of the law. It is an accurate summary specifically of what we would sometimes call the second table of the law. Now that language of second table may or may not be familiar to you, but if you think of the Ten Commandments, we know that the moral law of God was given to the people of Israel and written with his own finger, the Bible tells us, and handed to Moses, the Ten Commandments etched on this stone they were There were two tablets, two tables of stone. And if you think of the Ten Commandments, they they divide up fairly nicely into two different sections. The first four commandments, or the first table, if you will, they very clearly deal directly with our vertical relation to God. We're to have no other gods before the Lord. We're not to use graven images or make idols. We're not to take his name in vain, and we're to keep the Sabbath day holy. These are laws that deal directly with our relation to God. But then as we get to the second table, or to commands 5 through 10, it brings, uh, it brings in our relationship to other people, to those around us. Honor your father and mother. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Bear false witness. Do not covet your neighbor's stuff. These all relate to life with, alongside of, among other people. And it is this second table of the law that gets summarized here as whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. As I said, we find this summary in a number of places in the New Testament, though it is often stated in a slightly different manner is most often stated is most often stated as you shall love your neighbor as yourself this command to do to others what you would have them do to you is the command to love your neighbor as yourself so I want to look at a couple other New Testament texts here so keep your finger in Matthew 5 but flip over to Matthew 22 and verse 34 Matthew 22 and verse 34. It says, But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. 
So that's that first table of the law summarized here as loving God with all your heart, soul, and with all your mind. And then Jesus adds in verse 39, and a second commandment is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend or hang all the law and the prophets. And so these two tables of the law are summarized with these two great commandments. To love the Lord your God and then to love your neighbor as yourself. And it's that second commandment that is the focus of Jesus in Matthew 7, 12. And these two commandments really summarize the rest of the commandments that we find in the scriptures. as In the Old Testament scriptures, as Jesus is saying in Matthew 22 there. All the commands that we find in some way relate back to our love of God and to our love of neighbor. And so all those, well, that's why Jesus can say all the law and the prophets are built on these two commands. They hang upon them. In Galatians 5.14, the Apostle Paul writes, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So in the context of Galatians 5, Paul is there dealing with our interactions with one another, with believers' interactions with each other. And once again, as he's thinking about how we interact and deal with others around us, he again reminds us and teaches us that the law is summarized on this matter as you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And ultimately that phrase, love your neighbor as yourself, it comes directly from the Old Testament itself. Leviticus 19, there's a section there on how the people of Israel were to treat one another. In that section, it talks about not stealing, talks about caring for the poor that are in your midst, talks about not slandering other people, and then it concludes with this. Leviticus 19, 17, You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And so the commandment that is this golden rule has a long pedigree. It is ancient since it is a summary of God's law as it pertains to horizontal or, or human-to-human interaction. So it is not something that Jesus just drops on us out of thin air. Now there are places in the Bible, in the New Testament, where we might wonder, where it seems to suggest that loving others is, is new. So I think of John 13, 34. And there Jesus says this. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So there he says, I'm giving you a new commandment to love one another. And this, this might be why some people, wrongly, but why some people conclude that 
you know, the New Testament is about love. It's this brand new type of thing. And so they kind of can divorce it a bit from the Old Testament because the Old Testament's a little harsher and God's a little holier and a little more judgmental. And Jesus is bringing a new thing. It's a new thing. It's love. The New Testament is about love, not so much the old. But this is not correct. But of course, it raises the question, what does Jesus mean? Is it a new commandment? What does this mean? Well, I think in 1 John 2, verse 7, which was read for us earlier, I think we find something of the answer. I want to read a few of those verses again. 1 John 2, 7. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word you have heard. I think that's exactly what we've seen. It's an old commandment. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you which is true in him, in Christ, and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. And John continues. John is obviously aware here that loving your neighbor is not exactly a brand new concept. And yet he says it is new in that it is now understood in light of Christ having come and in light of Christ's spirit now working that law of love within his people. And so when we think of love now, we don't simply look back to the Old Testament commands. We don't simply look back to Sinai or to the Ten Commandments, but we look to Christ. We look to his demonstration of divine love to his people. And so even in John 13, when Jesus is saying um, that it's a new commandment, uh, he says there, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. He becomes our great model of love as he offered himself for his people. We think of Romans 5 verse 8. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. We see love in what Christ has done. He has offered himself for his enemies to forgive us, to die in our place, to turn back and satisfy God's wrath for our sins. So there's a, in the New Testament, a new or enhanced lens by which we now view and understand love. But it is not as if loving our neighbor is an altogether new concept in the New Testament. In 1 John 3.11, John says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Now many say there that from the beginning means from the start of your Christian life. It is you've always been taught this from day one of your believing in the Lord. But then the very next verse, verse 12, does demonstrate that the command has been around from the beginning, quite literally. Verse 12 goes all the way back to, to Genesis chapter 4. So after John says, again, 1 John 3, 11, for this is the message you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Then he says, we should not be like Cain, who is of the evil one, and murdered his brother. So all the way back in Genesis chapter 4, right after the fall of man into sin, we have this 
important lesson we are taught about the importance of loving our neighbor, loving our brother, as we consider the horrific violation of that command that was Cain's murdering of his brother Abel. This is a great example and demonstration of the fact that the moral law of God, which is communicated to us in the Ten Commandments, this is a great example of the fact that it was already in force prior to Exodus chapter 20, prior to Mount Sinai, prior to those stone tablets. This is why it was wrong, utterly wrong, horrific, that Cain would murder his brother Abel. The law of God was written on Adam's heart. And because of sin, it is now marred and defaced on man's heart of stone. The law is suppressed. Consciences can become seared. And yet Paul tells us in Romans chapter 2 that even so, unbelievers who do not know the Bible or have the law in front of them written down, they still sometimes do what the law requires. That whenever an unbelieving person does what the law requires, they show, Paul says in Romans 2.15, that the law of God is written on their heart. So man does have a sense. Murder is wrong. Man still does sometimes get things right. We'll still do something that is loving even though they are evil. They still, unbelieving man will still get things right now and then. Still show kindness to their children, etc. The demand to love others has always been in force. Again, which is why things like murder have always been wrong. While the Ten Commandments reveal this law of love on tablets of stone, the law didn't change the heart of those who received it. The law did not change the heart of Israel. Some indeed, as we read our Old Testaments, we can see that some did possess faith. There were some who were humbled before God, who trusted in Him, who looked ahead to God's promise of a mediator who would come. There were some who had circumcised hearts, but for so many of them, their hearts remained stone. The great need that becomes evident as you read through the Old Testament scriptures is that God's people need the Spirit of God to make their hearts new, that they might desire and and be enabled to obey God's law. Not only does man need forgiveness from God, but as we see in the case of the nation of Israel, and it continues today, we need forgiveness for our violation of God's law, but also we need a new heart that we might desire to even keep God's law in the first place. We need the heart of stone to be dealt with. And this is precisely what the prophets of the Old Testament we're looking ahead to with longing. They pointed ahead to a time when God would form a new covenant 
in which he would not just give his law in tablets of stone, but that he would make every member of that new covenant to have a new heart with the law of God written upon the heart, not just externally, but actually inwardly on the heart. And that this would be true for every member of God's people because this is the great need. It's not enough simply to have the law. We need our heart of stone dealt with. And as God promised to do this, to deal with the heart of stone and make it new, to give a heart of flesh, God declared in Jeremiah 31, 33, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. He's on to talk about how they won't need to tell each other, know the Lord, because every one of my people will know me. So we have two things here. As we think about the law written on the heart, we have the prophets like Jeremiah looking ahead to a time and prophesying about a time when God will write it on the heart. That's our great need. And yet these words of Paul in Romans 2.15 that I mentioned earlier, in which he says that actually unbelievers have the law of God written on their heart and they reveal this every time they do something that is in accordance with the law of God. And it can raise this question, which is it? How, how does this work? Do unbelievers have the law of God written on their heart or not? How is it then, you know, what's Jeremiah prophesying about? So, he, so here's how I think this fits. The law of God was written on the heart of Adam. In addition to the command to not eat of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil, he had the, the moral law of God written upon his heart to love Eve, to love God, But because of sin and its entrance into the world, this law of God that is on man's heart is now faint, diluted, corrupted, suppressed. It is not clearly seen nor clearly understood for what it is by unbelieving man. And even as man suppresses the truth and rails against God, every now and then it still pops up that there is still some understanding of God's law. And then when the Spirit of God comes along and regenerates a sinner, regenerates a dead heart of stone, giving the heart of flesh and writing the heart, the Spirit then writes anew the law of God upon the heart of the believer, such that there is new understanding, there is approval, agreement, and desire that this law of God is good, that this is objectively true and right. So it is somewhat like a piece of wood that has an inscription written on it, chiseled into it that becomes faded, faint over time. It's difficult to read and to make out. And then someone comes along and revitalizes it, re-etches the words, brightens it, makes it clear so you can very clearly read it and see it. I think this is how we should understand the law on the heart of man. So there's no surprise here that Jesus is teaching what has always been God's good law. To love our neighbors 
and to do to them as we would have them do to us. This has always been righteousness. This has always been right. From the beginning. And Christ redeems sinners so that we might walk in newness of life. Which includes loving others. His citizens are those who have new hearts, as we've seen. Think again, back to chapter 5, when he begins the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes. And he, starts, he describes the character of his people. And we said back then, another way we could say it is, Jesus is indicating to us that those in his kingdom are those who have had this work of the Spirit on their heart. And so that's why it is that they are the ones who are lowly, those who are humble in heart, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, are poor in spirit, and so on. And so we have the authority of this command. It has always been this way. Secondly, let's look at the command itself. The command itself, as Jesus states it here. Again, we have this elsewhere in the New Testament. We have this law. It's always been this way. But Jesus does state it here in a somewhat unique manner. He says, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. What does loving your neighbor as yourself look like? Well, generally, it's treating others as you would want them to treat you. This is a, a good and helpful, basic guide that reveals to us what love demands, what love means. If you find yourself wondering how to respond to someone else, consider just reversing the roles. If I was in their position and they were in mine, how would I want them to react to me? How would I want them to treat me? If someone took issue with something I said, how would I want to be approached? If someone else was talking about me, how would I want them to speak of me? Again, if we think about some of the specific things that Jesus has addressed in the Sermon on the Mount already, it is pretty easy to see how they are really applications of this principle, of these words, of this rule. So he's talked about loving our neighbors, or our enemies even. So if you were one who was in need, you were the man who was beat up and left for dead, and an enemy came by, you would want that person, even though they don't particularly like you, you would want them to help you. You would want them to show you kindness and mercy. You don't want people to be angry toward you or to hate you. You don't want people to take such an exacting view of justice that they're, they're using eye for an eye in every single wrong that you've ever committed against them. You don't want people being severely critical of you in their judgment of you, talking about you behind their back speaking ill of you, and so on.
Verse 12 phrases things in a positive light. Do what you'd like others to do to you. It's not just avoid acting badly before people, but it's do good to them. Do what you would want them to do to you. Be kind to others. Be generous to others. Think the best of other people. Be patient. Be slow to anger. Be truthful. Speak that truth in love. And so on. Again, the Pharisees, they would approach the Ten Commandments. They would approach God's law. And they would read, do not murder. And they would think, aha, I've never done that. I've never literally killed somebody. And that's it. That's all this is requiring of me. But it's not. Underneath that is much more. It's to seek the good and the welfare of your neighbor. To love your neighbor as yourself. That's more than just simply don't kill them. That's almost in one sense a bare minimum. Giving thought to how you'd want to be treated is a, is a, is a major help when figuring out how to love other people in particular circumstances. John Calvin said of this text, there is no need for long and involved debates if this simplicity is preserved and if men do not, by inordinate self-love, efface the righteousness which is engraven on their hearts. In other words, figuring out how to act or respond to somebody is often not that hard if we just apply this. If our selfishness and pride don't stop us or complicate applying this principle, this basic rule. Now, obviously, this rule can be abused. It has been abused. It can be misapplied. The rule that Jesus gives us here needs to be guided by the rest of Scripture, much of which is applying and clarifying this very principle. He has just said that. Uh, this is the law and the prophets. This is, so this line, verse 12, is not the only thing that we have. There are other scriptures that help fill this out, help us understand. So I do think many unbelievers will uh, read verse 12 or hear verse 12, and they'll approve of this. Uh, you'll hear non-Christian people speak of, of the golden rule, treating others as you want to be treated. Many would give an assent to this. And it might even make them at times a decent neighbor to you. Uh, maybe they don't bother you and they don't want to be bothered. They don't want to bother you or be rude to you and they can make for a decent neighbor. Again, I think that's evidence that the law of God is written on the heart of man. However, we cannot unmoor what Jesus says here from the rest of the Bible. For example, someone might say, I desire that others would approve of me and support me no matter what I do. And so I will support and approve of others no matter what they do. And to be honest, I think for a lot of people, for a lot of Christians, professing Christians, especially those in more liberal denominations, this is their understanding of Christian love. I just want your people to approve of me, to be happy of me, to kind of not bother me, not be have any kind of judgment against me whatsoever. And so this is how I will then treat everybody else. Like just no judgment whatsoever. Of course, there is judgment in that, but we won't chase that. 
Another might say, might abuse this principle saying, well, I don't ever want to be called out on my sin. And so I don't call anyone out on their sin. But of course, we are reminded, we saw back in verses 1 to 6, that there is a time and there is a way to address the sins that we see in our brothers' and sisters' eyes. I'm reminded that James tells us it is good when someone drags back a sinner from wandering off into sin. That Galatians tells us we are to restore a sinner gently. So this rule is guided by the rest of the Bible. And again, even in the Sermon on the Mount, there is more that fills out what Jesus says here in verse 12. It is accompanied by much teaching on the law. And so I think if we take a born-again Christian, which is what a Christian is, someone who is born again, who has the heart of flesh now, that the Spirit has regenerated them, made them new. You take Christians such as these, guided by Scripture, applying this golden rule as Jesus puts it here, we see that it is a very helpful guide in helping us understand the demands of love. And it is important for us to hear this again because we are not naturally good at this. I think we can see, we know that this is right. We know it is good to love other people, to love our neighbors as ourselves, to treat them as we'd like to be treated. But we are not naturally good at this in our flesh. And hypocrisy is super, super easy here. We demand that people act a certain way toward us, but then we don't really reciprocate that. You must assume the best of my motives when you're upset with me, but then I act like I have some sort of supernatural insight into your motives when you say something I don't like. If you read my email or text message, I expect you to read it with the best possible light and tone and assume that of me. But when I read your message, I read it with evil voice. It's not just no, it's no. I know people do this. I want grace and mercy from you, but I'm exacting with other people. We want kindness and patience toward us, but then we are impatient and rude toward others. If I am having a bad day, it's because of X, Y, and Z. And while that maybe doesn't excuse my sh being short, at least it'll make you understand. It'll make it understandable why I'm maybe being a little bit rude today. But if someone else is rude or grumpy toward me, well, then I just know that they're a jerk about it. <clears throat> no seeking to understand. This is the way we often just act. And so while this golden rule, so-called, is very simple and easy to understand, it is not something that is easily applied. It is something that requires the Spirit of God.
to work within us. So let us seek to be those who do treat others as we would like to be treated. Who think that way when we're trying to understand the demands of love. That we seek to apply equal scales to other people and to ourselves and how we treat other people. This is not a call to live naive or to be super simplistic. There are obviously very complicated and difficult situations we face. But we are called to treat those around us as we would want to be treated. Of course, as we bring this to a close, it is important to remember that what Jesus is describing for us here, what he is commanding here, is indeed a summary of the law. It is a summary of the law that you and I fall short of. We have fallen short and we will fall short. There has only ever been one who perfectly loved others. You and I will not be saved. We will not be justified by our loving other people well enough. How many people think that Christianity ultimately is about loving God and loving other people. That is a good summary of God's law. But we know that that law leaves us condemned before a holy God because we have not kept that law. It is the Lord Jesus who has shown us perfect love. He has kept God's law with absolute perfection in every single way. And then he offered up his perfect self to be the spotless lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. He has died for sinners. He has died for the ungodly. And in so doing, we have the ultimate picture of what love is for other people. So again, trust in Him. And when your love of other people is shown to be wanting, confess that to the Lord and rejoice again that you have a great Savior who died for you, not after you made yourself acceptable, but while you were yet a sinner while you are yet at enmity with God. And as he has been explaining, Christ's people are marked by love. It is a love that we grow in, but we are marked by love. First, it is a love for God in gratitude for his great grace to us. It is a love for his people, for the church, Christ's bride, our brothers and sisters. And this, as we read earlier from 1 John, is a defining characteristic of Christians. Love for other brothers and sisters. Again, from John 13. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. 
By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Christ is saying what marks the church is we love one another as Christ has loved us. And then, of course, our love also extends to the world as we seek to view sinners through the lens of compassion and mercy and armed with the truth and good news of the gospel. So again, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given it to us in a way that can be understood. And yet even in its simplicity, we know that there are many depths that we can mine. And Father, even in its simplicity, we know that we still fall short. It is not that we cannot understand the words that we have read here, but it is that we continue to fight with sin. Even as we wrestle with the flesh, as we live amongst the world, as we battle against spiritual forces of evil as well. Father, we are thankful that you are committed to your people to sanctify us. We thank you that we have great hopefulness and that we are to come to you in prayer with great hopefulness as we looked at last week. So Father, we pray that you would teach us, that you would help us to love other people, to love our families, to love our church family to have compassion and care and love for those around us to know what that would look like Father forgive our hardness of heart lead us into truth I pray that you would help us to be so very convinced of eternity and of what Christ has accomplished for us, that we would be filled with great joy, that we would gladly love other people. Father, that it would not be a burdensome weight to us, but something that we would gladly do as we realize it is, it is mimicking how you have treated us. So Father, help us in these things grow our love for you and our love for one another that people may indeed know that we are your, the disciples of Christ, your son. Father, I thank you for where this fruit is evident, for all the examples of where your people have loved one another and treated them as they'd like to be treated. Father, we give you praise for these evidences of your grace in our midst. We pray that you would continue to build us up into maturity together. We ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.